Well, good afternoon or good evening or good morning, uh, wherever you might be watching this in real time or asynchronous time. My name is Karen Eifler and I serve as the director of the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture here at the University of Portland. And I am delighted to welcome you to this webinar, a conversation with Father James Martin of the Society of Jesus talking about his book, Building a Bridge and how the Catholic Church and its members who are LBGTQ can practice uh, with one another some real gospel inclusion. I'm so grateful to our partners at the University of Portland for making this event possible. The Office of Student Affairs, the Office of International Education, Diversity and Inclusion, and Father Peter Walsh of Campus Ministry. I'm also delighted to note the presence of the entire body of ASUP student government in the room, as well as student leaders from the Gender and Sexuality Partnership. It takes a village to do just about anything worthwhile, and you are uh, proof of that. And finally, I have to acknowledge that tonight's conversation, both here and with our speaker on the East Coast, takes place on unceded lands tended for centuries by people and cultures who made their homes here. May the bridges that we build honor their memory, and may our pursuit of knowledge and healing make us more just, genuine stewards of the spaces that we occupy. A word about the format for this webinar. Once I conclude this introduction, and I will, I promise, I'll invite our guests to talk a bit, about 10 or 15 minutes, about his book to give us all kind of a common knowledge base about his go-to-the-mattress arguments for practicing full gospel inclusion. But the bulk of our time will be my sharing questions that members of the UP community have posted on a public questionnaire, and we'll get to as many of those as possible. I'm also mindful that in a room full of brilliant student leaders, you may well have questions catalyzed by what you hear, as will people listening in their homes and churches and offices, and my colleagues will be monitoring the Q&A function on Zoom. Here's an important safety tip for avoiding frustration. We will not be responding to any questions posted in the chat, so please use the Q&A function. And similar questions will be collated in the interest of hearing from as many people as possible. I'll alert Father Martin to the final question, and he'll close our time together with a prayer for all of us. Father James Martin, a Jesuit priest, seems to be everywhere that there's a story about LBGTQ plus folks and their allies, their joys, their sorrows, their griefs and hopes concerning their relationship with the Catholic Church. Father Martin is a prolific writer of books, articles, and everything in between, and he serves as editor-at-large for the Jesuit magazine America. His fellow Jesuit, Pope Francis, appointed him as a consultant to the Vatican Secretariat for Communications in 2016, which was also the year of the Pulse nightclub shootings in Orlando, Florida, a tragic loss of 49 humans that caused Father Martin to intensify his activities and amplify his voice on behalf of LGBTQ people. He's called on frequently by CNN, NPR, and Fox News Channel to comment on spiritual and religious topics and can be counted on to be one of the first responders when the Pope or any prominent Catholic voice utters something newsworthy. 
His relentless advocacy for compassion, dialogue, and social justice for all God's people has brought him passionate support and equally passionate condemnation within the Catholic Church and other bodies of faith, a tension I'm sure he'll tackle in tonight's conversation. To the cities and communities all over the world, he's brought his capacious mind and heart and humor. We are proud and happy to add the University of Portland in Oregon. Please join me in welcoming Father James Martin. Thank you so much. What a beautiful introduction. I, I actually didn't want it to stop. It was so lovely. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you, Karen, uh, for setting this up. Thanks to the University of Portland. Uh, I'm a great admirer of the school, uh, of the Holy Cross uh, traditions and legacy that you have. I was also, I should say, since you're in the Brian Doyle Auditorium, I was a friend of uh, Brian Doyle's and a great admirer of truly one of the best Catholic writers, uh, I think, of our time. Just a beautiful stylist. And um, hopefully he's praying for us now. I know he's praying for us now. So I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for letting me do this virtually. You just saved me about three or four days of travel. And uh, so, and I'm happy to really enter into a conversation with you. Uh, very briefly, as uh, Karen was saying, and Karen, you can call me Jim since I'm calling you Karen. Um, I, and I also, I do wanna start, I think land acknowledgements are really lovely. I am speaking from the unceded land of the Lenny Lenape peoples uh, here in Manhattan. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about um, the book that Karen mentioned early on called Building a Bridge and uh, how it came about, and just a little bit of an overview. So, um, you know, I'd been, uh, like many uh, Jesuit priests and like many people who work in the Catholic Church, friends with LGBTQ people. I advocated for them from time to time in America Magazine, where I, I work. Uh, one reason is because I felt that they did not have and do not have many people to advocate for them, to write about them. And so I saw that as a kind of special interest of mine. Um, and, you know, part of Jesuit formation, uh, that is our training, is really to stand with people who uh, feel excluded. So during my Jesuit training, I worked with uh, people who were sick, uh, people who were homeless, uh, street gang members, uh, people in jail. I worked with refugees in East Africa uh, for two years. So a lot of people who really feel on the margin. So it wasn't surprising or unusual for me or anybody to write about that topic. But I didn't do anything that was really formal. Do you know what I mean? I didn't really, I didn't belong to any LGBTQ outreach group at a church. I didn't, I, there were so many different organizations I could have belonged to. Uh, and as Karen was saying, that changed at the Pulse nightclub massacre uh, in 2016. You'll remember, of course, that 49 people, many more were injured. And what struck me, in addition to the terrible tragedy, uh, at the time, it was the largest mass shooting in US history was the real sort of tepid response from many Catholic leaders. Uh, very few bishops said anything. And those that did say something, uh, many of them, most of them didn't even use the word gay or LGBTQ. And that really bothered me. And the, the, the kind of word that came up in my mind, I'm sure you, you had this experience where kind of a phrase comes to you, you just keep thinking about it. And the phrase that kept coming to my mind was that even in death, this community is invisible to the church. So I did a Facebook video that, as they say, went viral. That was when going viral was good, pre-COVID. Going viral used to be a good thing. Um, and I've uh, got tons of views and you know, caused a good deal of controversy. And I basically said that the church needs to reach out to this community. 
That led to a talk at uh, New Ways Ministry, which is a group that advocates for LGBTQ people. And the talk was uh, called the Bridge Building Talk. And that gave me the idea for this book uh, called Building a Bridge, uh, which came out a year later, which was essentially the talk. And then at the end of the book, um, gospel meditations and Bible meditations to help people understand uh, how God asks us to reach out to those who feel excluded. Now, by the way, I do want to say something. I, I saw uh, briefly, I saw the audience. Not every LGBTQ person feels excluded from the church. So I don't want to keep using the word marginalized and excluded, but many of them do. And I think it's fair to say that many of them do. Um, so I wrote this book and, you know, it was a very simple book, very modest book. Uh, I, people laugh when I say I didn't expect it to cause much controversy. Um, I see Karen smiling and shaking her head. And, uh, and it did. Uh, the book is basically about how the Catholic Church can reach out with what the catechism, you know, our, our, which is the compendium of Catholic teaching, calls respect, compassion, and sensitivity. I thought those are great terms. And so I talked about how the church could reach out with respect, compassion, and sensitivity, but also how the LGBTQ community could be in dialogue with the church. So I thought, you know, this will be like a little resource. It was physically a small book. It's a, it was a little book. So I thought this would be a resource, maybe for groups like yours or parishes, and you know, then I'd go back to go back to my work about writing about spirituality and the saints and Jesus and prayer and you know. But I was stunned at the reaction. Um, some of the first talks that I gave were packed churches, packed, standing ovations, people standing in line to see me for two hours. I mean, really, really surprising to me. And I thought, boy, I'm not really saying anything different. Uh, I'm not challenging any church teaching. I've been very careful not to do that. And yet I think just the idea that the conversation was being started up really um, encouraged people, you know, and that there was someone with a collar doing it, um, which was unusual. Then came the pushback, which is still going on. I was called last week by a prominent Catholic website, believe it or not, the prophet of Satan. Um, so it's pretty ad hominem. Uh, it's pretty, uh, it was pretty vicious. Uh, at the beginning, I had some talks canceled. I had protesters. I still get protesters and picketers, and I don't know if Portland got any protests or letters, but it was really vicious. And it, and it wasn't just about the arguments in the book. It was about me, right? And, you know, every slur that you can imagine, heretic, apostate, false priest, wolf in sheep's clothing. If you go online, you'll see them all. Uh, then came what I would call the pushback to the pushback, uh, which is that cardinals, archbishops, and bishops invited me to give talks in their dioceses, uh, Atlanta, Chicago, um, and I, I accepted uh, as a sign of their support. And they got in trouble. You know, people were upset about that. And then in 2018, I was invited to something called the World Meeting of Families that the Vatican runs in Dublin, Ireland, the first time they ever invited anyone to talk about LGBTQ stuff. So I saw it as like a big step forward. Funny story, when people heard that I was coming. Now look, I have to say, I'm not used to being this kind of controversialist. My books were on, you know, my books have been on like the saints and prayer and suddenly I have all these people protesting me. It's a very strange experience. So when I accepted this talk in Dublin, uh, there was a, uh, an announcement that there would be, so this is the Vatican World Meeting of Families. It happens every three years. It's a big, big conference about family life and kids and all this stuff. And one group, uh, they decided they would have an alternate 
family conference, the, the world meeting of faithful families to, to, because I was at the other one. So the Vatican wasn't sufficiently orthodox for them. So anyway, I gave this talk. And then in 2019, um, as Karen was saying, I am a consultant to a Vatican, the Vatican communication department. And when I was over there, the uh, Pope Francis um, invited me to an audience, um, which I can say now was very encouraging. And he said, I want you to continue this ministry that you're doing. Uh, and then in the intervening year or two, we started a web, we started a, a ministry called Outreach. I really hope you guys can use it as a resource. It's a it's for LGBTQ Catholics. It has um, news and essays. Uh, it has a resource page, lots of stuff for university students and college students in multiple different languages. Uh, and then something called Gaudete, which raises up uh, parishes, schools, and individuals that provide a welcoming place for people. And then just in November, I had another meeting with the Pope. Uh, and then just last week, you probably saw the news about Pope Francis's interview with Associated Press, where he talked about homosexuality uh, coming out against the criminalization of homosexuality, which was a huge step forward, huge. And this is something that um, people have been talking about for a long time and have been encouraging him to do. Uh, at the same time, he said, well, you know, imagine someone would object to this and say, well, being homosexual is a sin. And I would say this back to them. Well, unfortunately, that line, Pope says being homosexual is a sin, got, you know, used and misattributed mis to him. So I wrote him a letter and said, would you like to clarify that? And he did uh, and said, I wasn't saying that. It's not what I was saying. Um, and so he put that on our website, which has been great. So it's been an interesting journey. And really, it started with the Pulse nightclub massacre. So that's kind of my journey. I have to say, since I was alluding to it. It's a very strange experience to be this lightning rod. It's a very strange experience to, you know, one month you're writing books about the saints and everyone just thinks you're, oh, wonderful, this is so moving. And then the next month you're the prophet of Satan. You know, you're a heretic and people spit on you. I mean, literally people spit on me. I get death threats and for basically saying that the church should treat LGBTQ people with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. That's all I've ever said. Um, so that's my journey. Uh, I'm much more interested in hearing your questions and having uh, a dialogue. Anyway, but that's that's a little bit about my journey, where I've been and where I am now. Okay, thank you. I'm just gonna um, try not to mess mess this up. What should I push? Oh, no one needs to see me. You just need to hear the question. So, um, Father, you can hear me, right? We can hear you and see my it. voice is quivering just a little bit. Um, I'd like to play with the title of your book, Building a Bridge. It's a powerful metaphor, especially here in the city of Bridges, Portland. Bridges are built on pillars that go very deep because if they're not, they're not going to do the job of keeping people safe from one side to the other. What are some pillars of the bridge you propose that make respect, compassion, and sensitivity possible? And what are some deeply sunken elements that might be a bit darker or less desirable? Well, Karen, I have to say, one of the things about doing talks like this after you've written the book is people raise things like that and you think, boy, I wish I put that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> that's, so, that's so good. It's such a great metaphor. Yeah, those pillars have to be sunk deeply. Um, one thing I do wanna say, uh, 
at the outset is this. The original book talked about it being a two-way bridge, that the church should reach out to the LGBT community. And I just, I think because the metaphor was so appealing to me and that the LGBT community should also treat the church, the institutional church, because, you know, they're part of the church, but the institutional church, the hierarchy, with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. I got challenged on that because a lot of LGBTQ people said, look, it's not an equal bridge. And we feel excluded by the church, not the other way around. So in the second edition, I do want to say that I was very clear that the onus should be uh, on the church to reach out. But in terms of the pillars, that's such a great, I really, I probably should have put that in the book. Um, you know, I think the main pillar is love. You know, on both sides, we would hope that both sides are uh, rooted and grounded in love for one another, love for God, love for the church, right? Uh, the second, I think, is charity. A little different. You know, treating people with charity, treating people with uh, an open mind, giving people the benefit of the doubt. Um, and I also think, you know, for the for the LGBTQ community in particular, it's funny, that bridge right behind you is really like sparking me thinking about this. I'm looking at all those pillars. For the LGBT community, I think one of the pillars must be for Catholics, for Christians, and I know this isn't all only a Catholic audience, uh, should be their baptism and their membership in the church. Like they are, I always tell LGBTQ Catholics this, so people say, oh, you know, you're, you're not in the church. Yeah, you are, you're, you're Catholic, you're baptized, you're Catholic. You're rooted in the church like that. Uh, and then the other pillar, I think, on the LGBTQ side, what a great, I really wish I could have written a whole chapter on this, um, is, is um, what do I want to say? How do I want to say this? Is, is your own belovedness hmm. as one of God's children. And even if you're, even if you're not a believer, your own, um, your own self-worth, that you are a valuable person, that, that if you're religious and you believe this, that God has made you. Uh, if you're not religious, that you are, you have value in yourself, even if people say that you're whatever. They, they say, you know, and I think this goes in particular these days for transgender people. Some people say they shouldn't even exist or they don't exist. No, that you exist, that you have value. So I think that kind of fundamental, your human dignity, that's what I want to say, hmm. which is a little different than your baptismal call. So all those are really important pillars that I don't think, you know, the LGBTQ side should ever lose sight of. And you're right. If the bridge is not built on a firm foundation, it will falter. Okay. Thank you. In your book, uh, there's a vignette where you relate some of the challenges that you had telling your own parents that you were going to become a Jesuit. And it didn't go well at first. You described they, they weren't over the moon. And you realize it's because you had had 27 years to get used to the idea where it was a brand new idea to your parents, who themselves probably had 27 years worth of dreams about their son's future. Well, our students and so many allies of LBGTQ plus people feel real anguish right now. The need for respect and healing is so dire that the prospect of being patient for years and years while other people catch up seems untenable. How would you counsel people in that position? What a great question. Again, uh, one of the things I do is I listen to where they are. And I, I don't try to deny their experiences, right? I don't try, you know, you shouldn't feel like that or just be patient, you know, which is not, not a good thing to do because, you know, it's very different from, first of all, it's very different from entering the Jesuits. It's just, and I wanted to try to make some analogy. 
Um, one of the things I say to LGBTQ uh, young people, of course, uh, is that oftentimes you know this experience and you know this world better than your parents do. So that's what I meant about the patients, that a lot of times the parents have to come to just understand it. Um, by the same token, I think it's important to, you know, in terms of that pillar of human dignity, to kind of claim who you are. So it's a tension, right? It's a tension between trying to be open with people, um, but also claiming your dignity now. And I think, you know, if you have people in your life who don't respect you, to not let that sway you. I think also, I do want to say at the outset, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have all the answers for this. A lot of these things might be better dealt with in terms of psychologists and counselors, but that's how I see it. I see it as a kind of attention, right? To, to give, for example, parents or friends the time because you know it better than they do, um, but also it, to immediately kind of claim your dignity uh, in this world uh, and your right to exist at the very least, your right to flourish too. Not just exist, but to flourish. Absolutely, it's a great it's a great word from uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, a Catholic theologian, and he talked about flourish. I just love that word. It's it's not just existing, and it's not just working. It's not just being. It's flourishing, and what what will help us flourish as human beings? Okay, okay. I'm turning now to the questions that were posed by respondents to our survey, and noting that several questions were similar. So these are probably composites of multiple questions. Um, here's one. We might have a limited awareness of what's happening on the ground all over the world, but you certainly get around. Uh, what are some key obstacles that you have identified that have prevented Catholic universities and perhaps parishes from supporting and welcoming LBGTQ plus students? And follow up, what wisdom do you have for faculty, administrators, and staff for overcoming those obstacles? Well, one thing I should point out in terms of a resource is that I gave a talk to the, what's called the American Catholic, oh my gosh, the, the what is, what is ACCU stand for? You must know. Amer American Conference of Catholic Universities, right? Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities, Thank ACCU. You. Yeah. Thank you. So that's who I gave the talk to. So it was the presidents of the Catholic colleges and universities. And if you want a resource, I have a sort of 10 things that Catholic, that Catholic colleges can do to welcome LGBTQ people. Uh, I actually think that this is a fairly straightforward question to answer. There are several reasons why Catholic colleges find this difficult. The first reason, the, the most common reason uh, is the Catholic leadership in the diocese. So a lot of it depends on your archbishop or bishop who, if he doesn't have formal oversight of the college, then has some sort of uh, influence in the college. And so if the bishop or archbishop is not open or as open to LGBTQ outreach or LGBTQ groups, right, then it's going to be much more difficult. That's the first thing. The second thing would be, um, you know, the leadership in the university itself or the religious order, perhaps. Now, I know the Holy Cross fathers and brothers are, are much more open. Uh, but, you know, that, that might be a barrier. Trustees, you know, they sometimes are worried about what is it, what's the trustee going to say. And I always say to them, you know, you're going to have a, just as many trustees and donors who are happy about that, you know. Uh, and then I would say the culture, the culture of uh, the area you're in. Now, you know, more broadly, Catholic college and universities around the world, I mean, 
boy, uh, you, you go to a Catholic college in sub-Saharan Africa, where I worked for a couple of years, or Eastern Europe, or Latin America, things are going to be quite different. And that is often the local bishop and the culture, right? Words of wisdom. I think that one of the most helpful things um, is for Catholic colleges and universities basically to do what they can, right? And so if you're in, an, if you're in a diocese or an archdiocese where it is difficult, where the bishop is opposed, do what you can. You know, does, does that mean you have to have a full-throated, uh, full-blown LGBTQ outreach club if you can't? No, but that may mean that you can have things that are more informal, that you could have teachers, and this goes for, I think, high schools as well, that you can have teachers who, who are open and who are, uh, you know, obviously providing safe spaces, where, that you can have informal groups, you can have uh, books that are recommended, you, can, you know what I mean? There's, there's, I, I think a lot of Catholic colleges and universities feel that they have to do everything. I do think, however, that at this, at this juncture, that the least that a Catholic college should do is have an LGBTQ outreach group. I think that's completely reasonable. And I think most Catholic colleges and universities actually do have that today. So it's gotten a lot better than where we were 10 years ago. Now, more than that, there would be a Catholic, an LGBTQ center Right, Georgetown has one, which is, the, I think, so far the only one. Uh, and then curricula and programs, right? So, but a lot of, again, a lot of it depends on the bishop. But I, I guess my advice is do what you can. It's, it's still valuable, even if you can't do, you know, 100%. Do you, I mean, I guess I want to hear you say it's enough for individuals to do what they can. I mean, we need the body to change. But individuals doing the best they can in the moment it all it adds up i mean is that true or is that absolutely, just absolutely absolutely and i think also one-on-one -on -one stuff helps so if a catholic uh, college student feels comfortable going to you karen and talking about being lgbtq fantastic one of the things i put now this is more for administrators one of the things the statistics i like is that the presence of at least one accepting adult in an LGBTQ student's life uh, reduces their risk of self-harm or suicide um, by 40%, right? Mm -hmm. So even if, you know, even if, even if it's just one, one accepting adult. But you know, Karen, it's interesting. When I gave this talk to the ACCU, one of the things that a college president said to me, which was really strong and striking, and I really heard it, was that an LGBTQ outreach um, and, and, and safety safety right and welcome and inclusion should be the least that the that, that the school should do do you know what i'm saying that mm -hmm. that lgbtq kids should feel safe and welcome and included that's the least mm -hmm. like every catholic college should help have lgbtq students feel welcome um, and one 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 uh, college president said not because they're catholic but because we're catholic yeah. and it's about respect compassion and, and sensitivity mm -hmm. um so but i, I think it's actually it's a lot brighter than it was 10 years ago, that's for sure. Okay. And maybe they'll look back in 10 years and think we're crazy now. I mean, just I think a they will. Okay. No, I think I they so. will. I think they'll yeah. say, how, how, was this, how was this so difficult for people to see that people should be included and welcome for who they are? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Good. I'm continuing with questions um, from the survey just last week. Pope Francis drew a distinction between homosexual actions, 
I think you've just corrected this, but I'm going to say I, I want to honor the question that was posed. Just last week, Pope Francis drew a distinction between homosexual actions as sinful rather than criminal. Could you help us understand why the church makes this distinction or why he might use the language that homosexuality is a human condition? Yeah, so I'm smiling because I, I wrote to him and asked him to clarify this. Asked if he would like to clarify it, I would say. I don't ask, I don't tell the Pope what to do. Um, so let's, let's just, let me, let's just, I'm really glad you asked that. Let, let's look at a little about this. So there are some things that the Catholic Church could do, which have, people have been advocating for, including myself, for quite a long time, that would change no church teaching. We're not talking about same-sex marriage or anything like that. One of them is, I'll go from sort of, uh, well, the first one would be um, opposing violence against LGBTQ people, coming out worldwide, publicly, saying LGBTQ violence should be condemned, you know, okay. The second one would be conversion therapy, right? Opposing what's called conversion therapy, which is this uh, outdated and um, misguided and uh, really rejected practice where you try to change people. I'm sure people know what that is, that the Catholic Church should condemn it. The third, and I actually think the most important, was the decriminalization of homosexuality. Now, what does that mean? That means in 67 countries, it is illegal to be gay or to engage in same-sex relations. You can be jailed. Now, of course, and in those countries, that means there's also lots of violence and harassment and beatings, right, as a result of that. So even if you're not jailed, you're, you're, you're living in terror. And then in 10 countries, you can be executed. And we see that within the past year, executed for being gay. So for the church to come out against the criminalization of homosexuality is a huge deal. I always point, people that this, point out to people, this is a life issue. Catholic Church is fond of talking about pro-life. This is pro-LGBTQ lives, okay? This is life and death. About a year ago, um, there was a, two years ago, where are we, 20, oh my gosh, 2023, uh, four years ago, sorry, 2019. COVID has warped us all. COVID has warped us, like, the before times. There was a conference at the Vatican where some advocates asked the Vatican to do that, and they, they didn't sort of follow up. So last week, the Associated Press, a friend of mine, Nicole Winfield, interviewed the Pope and brought this up. And he said very strongly, being homosexual is not a crime. It is unjust. The church should work against this. I mean, it was really strong. I was so happy. It was such a strong statement. And I asked bishops to work against this. I mean, you can't get any stronger than that. Then he said, well, what, you know, what if someone says, well, being gay is a sin? And I would say right back to them, well, if you think that's a sin, there's plenty of other sins, not being charitable to someone. So the headline was, which was false, Pope says being gay is not a crime, but it's a sin. He didn't say that. So I was so disturbed. I wrote to him and I said, you know, thank you for this wonderful comment. And it was so brave. However, people are misinterpreting what you said. Would you like to clarify it? And he did. And he wrote me a long letter, you can see it on Outreach, where he said, what I meant was that 
Catholic teaching is that sex outside of marriage for anybody is sinful. That's Catholic teaching. I was just repeating it. However, he said, which was new, um, this is part of Catholic moral theology, but it's rarely not applied to LGBTQ people. That, 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 that circumstances, we have to look at people's circumstances and that people's circumstances could decrease or even eliminate uh, the fault that is involved, which was really new. Uh, not, not new in Catholic moral theology, but that it is said so publicly by a pope. And then he reiterated, he said, but, but we have to work for the decriminalization of homosexuality. So I was very happy that he clarified that. It, that, that got, uh, I think, even more press, um, which was good. And so what Pope Francis is doing is, is trying to take the church step by step, because we have to remember, look, I'm, and I'm imagining what people in the audience are thinking, like, oh, well, big deal. Like, what's the big deal? Like, of course, it shouldn't be a crime. Is that all he could say? Well, in Ghana, hmm. the bishops of Ghana have said it should be a crime have sided with these repressive laws from the government there. In Poland, a bishop said that uh, gay people are a plague. So while we in the West, you know, in Portland and in New York and everywhere in between might think, well, big deal. In those countries, it's a big deal. And so the Pope is, you have to give him credit, really going on in a limb on a topic that really upsets people in many of those countries not in all those countries but so i think he's really being very brave so that's that's the whole story of which i was a small part okay you you made the point in building a bridge that when, when the pope communicates to the church he's communicating to a global church and and there's a whole lot of diversity you've laid out some of the really caustic differences in in um criminality of homosexuality in certain countries as opposed to the US. And so we, we're on different timetables and different reality bases. And I have to say, I don't always take that into account when my impatience gets the better of me, is that he's talking to everybody, not just Portland, Oregon. Yeah, and I think, I think what we have to keep in mind is the tension between what I would call the tension between prophecy, right, uh, and unity. So the prophetic Pope would say, I'm just going to say this. But he has to look at unity as well. Uh, so that's why I think he's doing it step by step, going slowly. But he says things, you know, he often says things in an off-the-cuff way. Uh, and, he, and he sort of sends out signals. So, for example, uh, you know, when I met with him in November and a couple of years ago, they send out a picture of that meeting. That's a, that's a sign for people. He meets with transgender people. I just found this out. We put this on outreach. He meets with transgender people monthly at his audiences, and there are pictures of that. And so he, he teaches like Jesus did in gestures too, not just in, in words and in documents. But I don't think we can underestimate. I mean, let's, let's focus on nothing against Ghana. I have a lot of friends who are Ghanaian. But, you know, the, the bishops there, how that's going to sound to them. It's a direct contradiction to what they've been doing. And, you know, earlier, I think about six months ago, maybe a year ago, uh, in an audience, he said a, a parent should never, um, you know, not welcome their child, no matter what orientation, even using that language. You know, so, so it's really, you know, also we have to remember, he's an 86-year-old Argentine Jesuit. This is a guy who's, he's really trying his best to 
kind of moved the church. And I, I think I give him a lot of credit. I, I give him a tremendous amount of credit for going out on a limb. And again, even though in Portland, it might seem, you know, kind of lukewarm. In other places, it's white hot. Mm -hmm. That's a really good reminder. I don't know if you could hear the chuckle that you elicited. We're at about the half point, halfway point. So I just want to uh, read one of the notes we got from the audience who's here in the room. Thank you, Father Jim. You embody Jesus's instruction to love your enemies. What? So kudos. They didn't say anything to me, but thanks to you uh, for embodying Jesus's instruction to love your enemies. What sustains you? I think we want some of what you got. What's the Yeah, sure. Um, okay, well, a couple of things. It's kind of a long answer, um, but I'll try to make it short. So I think the most important thing is I went on a retreat a couple of years ago. I'll keep this short. And I was praying over the passage called The Rejection at Nazareth. So for non-Christians there, Jesus stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he basically says he's the Messiah. And they chase him out of the synagogue, and they try to kill him. They try to push him off a cliff. And I was praying about this, and I remember thinking, boy, you know, Jesus knew all these people in his town. He knew everybody. Nazareth was 200 or 400 people. I just finished a book on Jesus, so I knew this. Nazareth was tiny. Nazareth could probably fit in the auditorium where you are. Think about the size of it. And I remember thinking to, to myself, like, and asking Jesus, you know, Jesuits, we imagine these things. I imagine asking myself in prayer, how are you able to do this? How could you stand up and know that people are going to, attack you knowing that you know what you were saying was going to drive people crazy and the answer i heard in prayer i didn't really hear it but the answer i imagined him saying was must everyone like you mm. and at the time i thought yes <laughs> everybody must like me but i realized i needed to be free of the need for everyone to love like or approve me that was a couple years ago years ago and that came back to me when all this hatred was happening that's the first thing so can I be free of the need for everybody to like me? Does the person who calls me a prophet of Satan on this website that was picked up by all these other websites, does he have to like me? No, even though he's a priest. Hmm. He doesn't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'd like him to like me, but he doesn't have to. If Jesus waited for people to like him, he would be, he'd still be, you know, sawing wood in Nazareth. <laughs> well, maybe not now. Well, actually, maybe he would be. Um, <laughs> little theology, but um, uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is um, that I do have the support of the Pope, my Jesuit superiors, and my Jesuit brothers, um, and I, I am careful about telling them what I'm doing, right? So I'm, I'm firm about they know what I'm doing. I'm not doing anything that's a surprise, you know what I mean? Uh, and I, I count on that, and I'm doing this not everybody does this, but I'm doing it from within the church, mm. right? And so if someone says to my Jesuit superior, did you hear what Jim Martin did? He'll, see, he'll say, yeah, he told me he was doing that, you know? Uh, and then the third thing I think is, I, I think that this is the right thing to do. Mm. I just think it's the right thing to do. And Jesus tells us if we're going to do the right thing and you're going to get pushback. Mm. Why should I be any different? So that, you know, and then from time to time, it, it flares up and I get frustrated, but then eventually I just say, you know, it comes with the territory. You kind of, ex you need to expect it. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is this, a little, little advice. So a lot of it, I just don't pay attention to. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of it's like, you know, it's either crazy people or 
trolls online or and I don't mean that to be derogatory, but you know, some some account that has just been uh, you know, started an hour ago with three followers says you're a heretic. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I, I really, you know, what, what is this? It's, you know, it's like some some kid in their basement, you know. But even when it's someone who's like, you know, I was attacked recently. I couldn't believe this. I actually couldn't believe it. Someone said that Pete Buttigieg, our Secretary of Transportation, was not married. Mm-hmm. And I found that kind of, I felt sorry for him, actually. I thought, look, whatever you think about Pete Buttigieg and whatever you think about same-sex marriage, whatever you think about same-sex relations, he's legally married. He he is. And as much as anybody else who goes to a justice of the peace or a Jewish couple gets married in a synagogue or a Muslim couple, you know, in in a mosque or Buddhist, Hindu, atheist, you're married. And I found that was kind of insulting. So I just wrote, Pete Buttigieg is married. And people went nuts. (laughs) <laughs> that's we prophet of satan i had a i had a cardinal come out against me a priest bishops and i just so i i said well look i'll i'll give them the benefit of the doubt maybe they didn't understand me so what i said was and i, well, I was really surprised it's like saying you know karen's wearing a a blue jacket like she's wearing a blue jacket so i said look pete buddha judge is legally married his marriage is recognized by his church, by the state, and to deny otherwise is just denying reality. D- despite what you may think or not think about same-sex marriage, he's married. More, more craziness. You're, you're evil, you're a heretic, you disgust me, death threats. The other thing is this, and I, wanted, I, I know this is a long answer. The other thing is this, there's a lot of homophobia out there. There's a lot of homophobia, there's a lot of hatred and it's surprising, uh, but this kind of this kind of reminds me that, of the work that needs to be done. And the other, the final thing is ecclesially, a little Catholic, inside Catholic stuff. I think people that hate Pope Francis, and there are quite a few, it's easier to hate on me. Mm-hmm. You know, you can say he's the prophet of Satan or he's an antichrist or he's going to hell or, and, that's acceptable, whereas you, you, it's harder to say that about the Pope. So, if you're a certain kind of person, I guess, yeah. Um, Father Martin, we have a number of questions that are kind of what should I do they, coming out of a lived experience. So, I'd like to relate. Um, probably, I think we might have time for about three of them, and, and there's a lot of overlap. The common thread is anguish. I just want to be really clear about that. And so, I, I want to be really respectful here. One is, as an openly gay woman, I've been told point blank by parishioners at my home parish that I should go to this other parish where, quote, all the gays go. How do I respond to this, especially given the irony of singing opening hymns such as All Are Welcome in this place? Well, there's a human response that I'd like to say. (laughs) But I will say this. Um, First of all, I'm sorry to hear that. I think I think there's two ways of dealing with that. Well, there's many ways of dealing with that. Uh, the first is to stay and to say, I am a baptized Catholic. This is my parish, right? And I'm going to stay here. And if that's a disturbing element, that's not my 
that's not my fault. And if you hear homilies that are offensive, then you tell the bishop and you tell the priest how offensive that is. Now, most people will actually find a more welcoming parish. I think to go where you're nourished, uh, you know, might be helpful, or maybe you do both. Maybe one Sunday you go to one and the other Sunday you go to another. I think one of the key things is to remember that you are just as much a Catholic as anyone who says that, as your local priest, as the bishop, as the pope. You are a baptized Catholic, period. And people say, oh, well, you're, you're, if you're married, you're, you're sinning. There are so many people whose lives don't fully conform with Catholic teaching. Do we treat divorced and remarried Catholics like that? No. Do we treat people who are using birth control like that? 80% of Catholic married couples have no problem with using birth control. Does anybody say we should get rid of all married couples from churches? 60% of college students are sexually active, right? Does that mean when I, when I give a talk to college students, they say, why are you talking to those sinners? It's only the LGBTQ person. And I think one of the reasons is that you're not known as well by the church. So it's difficult to hear. I always think of the civil rights movement where the people that, who were being persecuted themselves had to be the leaders. It's hard. You think of one of my heroes is John Lewis, you know? Mm -hmm. I just think he's just amazing or was amazing. And, uh, you know, I mean, he was beaten and, and he just, he, he continued. And so it's a hard thing for LGBTQ people to hear, but it's the same thing in the church. It's getting people to respect you and know you. But I think you also have to take care of yourself. Okay. And so the discernment is, do I stay in this place? Do I go to a place where I feel more welcome? Either is a, is a good path, I think. But I, I wouldn't be anguished at your own place in the church. The other thing is I want to say, maybe the most important thing I want to say is this. Those comments are not coming from God. So you should not let them in. They're not coming from God. I mean, I want, I'll, I'll, I'll use an analogy. If I cross the street and I live in New York, if I cross the street and someone says, Father Jim, you know, I, I don't know how people would know my name, but some crazy person says, you're a murderer. Well, I'm not a murderer. Like I haven't murdered anybody. <laughs> Even though people think I'm this antichrist online. So I've never murdered anybody. I can say that. So I'm not going to let that in. That's just false. It's false. Mm -hmm. And as such, it is not coming from God. So if someone says to you, you don't belong in this church, that is not coming from God. That does not deserve to be let in. Don't let it in. You know, if someone says to Karen, if someone says to Karen, you know, you're, you don't have any qualifications to do what you're doing. Of course you do. You're not going to let that in. You might, it might, it might bother you a little bit that this person is being rude, but it's not going to sway you. So that's part of it too. That's part of the foundation, rooting yourself in your human dignity and in your own membership in the church. Mm -hmm. A, a follow-up that um, touches on a couple of the questions that have come from uh, members of the audience here in the room is, okay, don't, don't let those comments in because it's not coming from God. But what if it's coming from the guy in the chasuble at the pulpit saying, Marriage is one man, one woman. People who don't abide by that are are evil. What what if it's coming from the priest um, that we have in some ways been conditioned to receive as someone who is standing in for God in this earthly experience? 
if they are insulting you or making you feel excluded or making you feel that God rejects you, it's still not coming from God. Okay. I mean, look, I think the sex abuse crisis has shown um, that priests are not without sin, right? And so there are, look, I think most priests are actually very compassionate and caring people and they, they try their best. But I get text messages every day and DMs and, and Facebook messages telling me what priests have said. It's not coming from God. Hmm. You know, if it's insulting or if it makes you question your own membership in the church, if it makes you question whether or not God loves you, you know, if people say you're evil, uh, and I, I, I hear this especially with transgender people these days, you know, you don't belong, you don't exist. That is just, it's not something that is proceeding from God because God, this is, look, this is not, think about Jesus. Jesus's movement is always to bring people from the outside in, right? He's healing. He's restoring people to community. Now people say, oh, well, he's all, also calling out sin. Yeah, he is, but we're all sinful. But we all, we're all in need of conversion. But to, but to target one group and exclude them in this way is really contrary to what Jesus is asking us to do. Okay. A um, couple more kind of along this vein. Again, this comes from a member of our uh, live audience here in Brian Doyle Auditorium. I am gay. How can I speak with family members that have a lot of hate against LBGTQ plus people? How can I have respectful dialogue? That's a great question. I, I think, um, you know, I think some, some of those questions are better answered by counselors and psychologists, but I would just say this. I think uh, telling your story is very important rather than coming up with arguments like you should, and, and I'm not saying to this question that he or she or they would be saying this, but you know, that you, you know, mom and dad, you, you should do this. You should do that. You should understand this just to say, here's my story. You know, here's how I came to understand myself. I think that's the first thing. I think also being careful about who you tell. Some people actually can't hear it at the moment, you know, uh, Sometimes it's actually like aunts and uncles or grandparents that might be able to hear it better. Sometimes threatening for the parents because they have all these ideas about your future. So tell, tell maybe one person at a time and see how it goes. Uh, and be patient with yourself. The other thing is this. The other thing is I think that this is just a thought. This, is, this may not be true. I think that some LGBTQ people, less so now, feel that if they're not open with everybody in their family, immediately they're somehow failures or they don't have integrity or something. Do you know what I mean? But that's not the case. So I think you need to do it as you can. Do your best. If they hate you, still. Also, my experience is that parents, families eventually start to understand, eventually. But also you need to protect yourself. Can you surround yourself with people who do accept you and do understand you? But I also think it's always important to keep the door open to the family. I really do, because it's it's allowing them to to change and to to sort of come up to where you are. I'm glad you someone brought that question up. Sounds like you're also coming back to kind of where we started. Do what you can in the moment. Yeah, you know, one of the key things in Jesuits, so I'm a Jesuit. Uh, the Jesuit spirituality is discernment, and that means that one size does not fit all. And so what work, might work in 
your case, I'm talking to the questioner, might not work or might work in somebody else's case. It doesn't mean it's just, it's for you. So for example, if all your students, if all your friends say, you know what you gotta do, you know what I did? I wrote a letter to my whole family or I, had, I did it at Thanksgiving, you know, and, and everybody was mad at me, but I didn't care. Well, that may not be good for you. You know, your parents are different, your family's different, you're different. So I would just, that's part of respecting who you are and part of respecting your own journey, your own path. So I think part of it's being gentle with yourself too. I, I think that's really, we hold ourselves to such high, particularly these days, it's, you know, everyone, everyone has to be open about everything immediately or you don't have integrity. Well, you know, your, your family may be different and it may take a while and that's okay. You know, someone said to me once, um, oh, this is a different thing. Someone said to me, I, I was talking about someone who had a kind of conversion experience, not like seeing visions or anything, but, you know, really gradually came to understand, you know, their place in the world and God and everything. And I said, and it happened in about six months. It was a person I was directing on a retreat. And I said to my own spiritual director, oh, it's like a miracle. And he said, it is a miracle that this happened. And he said, I'll never forget this. He said, is it any less a miracle if it happens in six months instead of like that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let, let these little miracles take their time if they want to. Okay. Um, this will be our last question. UP is a Catholic Holy Cross school and the Congregation of Holy Cross are hardwired to be people with hope to bring. As our time draws to a close, what actions and signs do you see from young people, high school and college age students that give you hope and that might give us hope about the chances of real gospel inclusion happening on the bridges that we will build? Well, the first thing I wanna do is talk about the, the, the changes that I see in the church. And I do wanna say that two, two main trends. One is Pope Francis. And I don't know if people know this, he's the first Pope ever to use the word gay publicly. Um, he has gay friends. Uh, he appointed an openly gay man to a papal commission recently. He writes to people like myself, Sister Janine Gramic at New Ways Ministry. I can name all these different people who work with LGBTQ people the Pope has written to. He meets with transgender people. He just came out for the decriminalization of homosexuality. This would have never happened 10 years ago. He appoints people, cardinals, archbishops, and bishops who are more open to LGBTQ people. That's one trend. The other trend in the church is as more and more people come out, more and more universities, families, schools are affected, right? And so that's just changing the church. Um, but in terms of the young people, oh, I'm super hopeful. And I'm not just saying that because, you know, it's like you're supposed to say that, oh, young people make you hopeful. <laughs> oh, what gives you hope? Oh, young people. Um, no, they really do because they are so, much more comfortable with this than my gender. I'm 62. Now, let me just say this. It's like old man talk. Um, I was talking to a group at a Jesuit high school in New York and they were saying, you know, that nothing changes. And I said, and this is true. Now, students in the university might not, uh, might not believe this. This is totally true. When I was going to high school, I graduated in 1978, the height of the disco era. Um, <laughs> It would have been unthinkable for anyone to be openly gay. Absolutely unthinkable. There was no one in our school that was gay. I mean, there were, but unthinkable. You would have been beaten. 
and you would have not been able to come to school. And this was a very, this is a regular kind of Philadelphia suburb. How things have changed, but just in the last 10 years, how things have changed. Now, what I'm saying is for young people today, it's just extraordinary how accepting they are. I want to, I always end with a story. My nephew is now, he always gets mad when I forget his age. He's 17 now. If I, if I get it wrong, he gets really mad. Um, Uncle Jim, I'm 17. So he, about two or three years ago, I was talking to him about going back to school. This is about three, four years ago. And it was in the summertime. And we were walking around his neighborhood. And I said, are you excited to go back to school? He's like, no. And I said, oh, come on. You must be excited for something. No, I'm not. You want me to lie, Uncle Jim? I'm not. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was in high school. He's very funny. And I said, well, you must be it must be something you're interested in. Well, I'm interested in seeing some of my friends. Some of my friends I didn't see this summer. And he said, I'm interested in, I won't say the kid's name. I'm interested in X, not his name. I said, I, you know, normally you, you know, you know that your uh, family members, close friends' names, you know, they come up in conversation. I said, who's X? And he said, oh, X used to be named something else, but uh, he's, He's transgender now. And I said, wow, what's he like? You know, trying to like, thinking he'd talk about him as a transgender kid. My nephew said, I'll never forget this. Oh, he's, he's really funny. He tells the funniest stories. Nothing about. And I said, um, I will never forget this. Are you nice to him? And he looked at me and said, why wouldn't I be nice to him? So... For him, he's just this friend, mm -hmm. and that's a wonderful thing. And I think that's where the church should be, that they are our friends. They are who they are, they have dignity, we respect them, and really, in the end, we love them for who they are and not for them being LGBTQ. My, my, my nephew likes his friend for, because he tells funny stories. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what really, that, that, that gives me a lot of hope. And I see that over and over and over again. Great. Well, that, that seems like a nice place to take a pause because the work is going to continue. I know you're the spawn of Satan and everything, but um, you had agreed to uh, close our time together with a prayer. And I'll ask after the prayer, um, Jim, if you would give the challenge to this live audience that you told me about before about the picture. Uh, yes. us taking a picture and why we're doing it okay yeah and maybe i'll say that before the prayer if you don't mind so um so i was telling karen or i was asking karen um if after the after your talk is done everybody in the auditorium obviously it would be hard to do it online uh could gather together for a picture and also please make sure you have someone who knows how to take a good picture um because i like to share these things on social media why is that not to you know like show what the auditorium looks like but uh to give people some hope when people see at catholic colleges that there are talks like this it really gives people a lot of hope so for those of you who want to participate great for those of you who don't fine a nice close-up picture of everybody would be great um and that would be really lovely if i could share it on social media um so let's um let's just pause for a prayer i think rather than the long prayer let's just maybe do a little more freeform prayer is that okay that's fine all right so maybe um, before we part, 
we can all think of one thing we've heard tonight, a question, an insight that has helped you. And just to call it to mind and be grateful for it and maybe thank God for it. Just one thing you heard tonight that'll help you. Good and gracious God, we thank you so much for this time tonight. We thank you for bringing us together uh, as a church, bringing us together as a community, bringing us together uh, as members of the Portland community. We thank you for the gift of the university in our lives. We thank you tonight, especially for the gift of LGBTQ people, our friends and our families uh, in the university, we thank you for the love that they show us, uh, for the courage that they demonstrate, and for the ways that uh, they reveal your presence in our lives. As we think about ways of reaching out to them more and including them more and welcoming them and celebrating them, give us a spirit of hope and courage and most of all love. Help us to be rooted and grounded with those pillars we talked about at the beginning so that we can be a bridge between your love and their love. And we ask all this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Um, I think it's time for applause. Uh, you can applaud at home too. <laughs> if you would like to revisit this, con uh, this conversation or share it, it was recorded and it will be available in about five days on the Garabena Center website. And we'll publish that link widely. <laughs> I want to thank uh, Father James Martin, Father Jim, uh, Father John Donato, Tammy Herdner, Eddie Contreras, and uh, Father Peter Walsh for making this event possible, and to our remarkable student leaders for the energy and commitment that you bring to our communal striving. Peace be with all of you. Have a good evening or good morning or a good afternoon. Thank you so much, Father James. Thanks, Karen. God bless you, too. Thank you.